afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for the WAM Alternate Assets uh, 2023 Interim Results Webinar. I mean, as you all know, this is your company. Thank you all for calling in. We've got a, a really good, you know, a solid number of shareholders that have um, joined the webinar already, and I'm sure more will join the webinar over the next hour. And obviously, it's your opportunity. You know, we are here because you allow us um, to do what we love doing and we're passionate about doing. So it's your opportunity to ask us any, any questions you have about the company. My name is Jeff Wilson and I'm one of the directors of WAM Alternate Assets and I'm also chairman um, of Wilson Asset Management and chairman of the investment company of WAM, sorry, and chairman of the investment committee of WAM Alternate Assets. Today, today we're joined by the portfolio manager who really you know, does with her team you know, the hard yards in terms of setting up this portfolio to perform. And that's uh, Dania Zinarova. Um, and she will take you through how she's seeing the portfolio, how she's positioned it, um, and, and how it's positioned to benefit um, from you know, the various, you know, the environment we're in at the moment and her views of you know, what will be happening uh, going forward. In terms of you know, some of our um, uh, various managers that manage parts of the portfolio that Dania allocates to them, I'm very excited. We've got uh, the head of Australian Senior Loans um, from Intermediate Capital Group, um, or some people refer to them as ICG. That's Matt Turner. So he will discuss um, a little bit about you know, some of the money that we've recently allocated to him, you know, what area that is going to be uh, invested in. The, um, in terms of you know, Matt, he's, he's a seasoned professional in that um, you know, high-yielding senior loan space, now, having worked at various organisations, uh, both domestically in Australia and overseas. You know, he, he worked at Credit Suisse in London for a period of time um, as a debt market specialist. So he's really got you know, close to three decades of experience and, and a very broad experience. Um, in terms of a disclaimer, I think, I think we've got to put a little disclaimer slide up. So you know, the advice we're giving you is general advice. Um, you know, so there's, um, you know, the, the, you know, please... You know, seek professional advice if you, um, you, know, it, you know, if you require it and you need it. In terms of the investment portfolio's performance, just let, let's look at that because we're, this is about you know, the result we've just announced. Um, you know, the board of directors of WMA were very pleased you know, to be able to increase the dividend by uh, a good amount, you know, 25%, a fully frank dividend. Um, and, and so... You know, the other company is in very, you know, it's probably an indication from the board that they, they are very confident about the company and its ability to continue to pay you those fully frank dividends and, those, and a growing stream of fully frank dividends. In terms of how much you know, franking, there's a little over 19 cents of profit reserve. Sorry, the ability to pay continued fully frank dividends is a little over 19 cents of profit reserve there. So, um, you know, so the ability to keep uh, delivering that dividend or if not growing that dividend is there. In terms of the portfolio, 
you know, since Wilson Asset Management took over, obviously the share price has performed exceptionally well. It was trading at a big discount. That discount is a lot less. Now, it still is high. Now, it's a little over a 12% discount. And I think, you know, again, that will, that will, dis- you know, that will disappear over time. And we expect you know, the you know, share price to reflect the NTA. And you know, that, you know, that is, you know, um, well, actually, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's 12 on, a 12 on 88. You know, so it's probably about 14% higher. Um, and so we expect you know, the share price will move to that level, the NTA, uh, if not a premium. Um, and, and we've got all, uh, you know, all, all, the, all the parts of the uh, equation are there in terms of excess franking, sorry, excess profit reserve, also uh, you know, some, some franking to keep uh, growing that fully frank dividend and Dania and a really good portfolio that's performed well. Um, and, and in terms of the portfolio, when you look at the portfolio on the surface, you know, you look at the our monthly announcements, you'll think there's quite a bit of cash. Um, that, you know, there's a little over 43-odd percent in cash. That is uh, some of – a lot of that cash is committed. Um, you know, a, a little over 30% of that cash is committed, um, which excluding that committed cash, you know, there's – uh, just a, a little bit above, oh, well, nearly 14% uh, hasn't been committed. And that, that'll be committed over time uh, when Dania finds what, you know, what she believes are you know, exceptional investment opportunities. You know, she's already, Dania's already done a fantastic job in reshaping the portfolio since Wilson Asset Management took over it, uh, the running of the portfolio, and we're very pleased with that. Um, what I'll do is... Uh, I'll pass over to Dunya now. We'll just give you a bit of a um, you know, talk about the portfolio, how it's you know, how it performed over the last six months, and probably you know, maybe talk a little bit about um, where she sees the portfolio going forward. Uh, thanks, Dunya. I'd like to pass over to you now. Thank you very much, Jeff, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you very much for interesting managing um, your listed investment company. I'm very excited by the progress that we've achieved. And before I provide a brief update on the portfolio, I did want to emphasize that the investment case for alternative assets remains very strong. It is an asset class that can be seen as complementary to any investment portfolio, has a number of strong benefits such as diversification and access to attractive opportunity set that is not necessarily accessible in other asset classes. But what's more important in the current market environment, within alternative asset classes, there are strategies and assets that can provide some inflation hedge and can provide some interest rate hedge. I'm very excited to have Matt here today with us who will talk more about this. So Jeff mentioned that the portfolio has been strong since inception, since we took over the management of the portfolio. And the drivers for that strong performance were both from the exits that we realized over the period of two years and also new investments that we made within the portfolio. So over the last two years, 
we made 12 exits, 10 of them are fully realized and two of them are partially realized. The portfolio has evolved and will continue evolving as part of the portfolio that we've seen, uh, you know, triggered a lot of interest and questions from you um, during the previous webinars, the water rights, we've been working on gradually reducing that part of the portfolio in order to reinvest capital in other opportunities and add more diversification and potentially more predictability in terms of the yield. So the water rights within the portfolio are, as of the end of January, at about 22% of the WMA portfolio. Um, the portfolio is now in a position where we can say it has a solid base of investments delivering good yield. A lot of that yield is linked to CPI or rising interest rates. We just recently deployed capital in infrastructure strategies, diversified infrastructure fund and renewable energy fund, both managed by one of our investment partners, Palisade Infrastructure Partners. We made some new investments last year. And when I look over the last two years, we made nine new investments. It does take time for some of the opportunities to deploy the capital in those investments. And the progress is underway. So I'm very confident this year will be an active year in terms of the transactions across asset classes in Australia and the environment is really uh, supportive of investments in alternative asset classes. We continue making co-investments as well through some of our relationships uh, arranged as separate mandates and some really exciting opportunities within healthcare, aged care. One of the examples that we communicated with you aged care decisions. It's a digital platform connecting families looking for um, aged care and connecting service providers. Advara Heart um, Care, which is Australia's leading sleep respiratory and cardiology clinic. Um, and that was done with our investment partner Adamantum. And we also you know, finally got the exposure within the portfolio to uh, very solid, mature infrastructure assets. Um, so all very exciting, all moving in the right direction in terms of the uh, shape of the portfolio. And over the next 12 to 18 months, I expect we will see more exits from the inherited investments across uh, private equity and real assets. In terms of opportunity set in the market, um, it's the year where private equity infrastructure and private debt um, are likely to be the highlight within the alternatives. And there are various reasons for that. For the private debt investors, it's really the opportunity to engage with businesses who not necessarily can find um, support on their um, debt um, strategies and not necessarily can get access to banks. And this is where 
players like ICG can step up because they do have very technical experience and they can be flexible in terms of structuring what those businesses need. And in terms of the infrastructure, I expect we will see more capital being invested in renewable energy, digital infrastructure, and anything connected to energy transition theme that we also follow within our portfolio. Private equity is um, expecting to see more deal flow coming through also because last year was much slower in terms of M&A activities in Australia. And we already started seeing it from January this year that definitely the pipeline of deals and the pipeline of opportunities is much richer now. To remind you that our goal is to democratize alternative investments and to bring high quality alternative assets to our shareholders, the ones that are often just not accessible uh, for this um, part of the market. And we will continue partnering with leading investment teams in the Australian alternative investment space who can demonstrate strong track record and strong governance. I am looking forward to our Q&A and I know there will be some really interesting questions. Thank you very much, Jeff. No, look, thank you um, very much, Tanya. And, and as I said earlier, it's, um, you know, it's, it's really a great opportunity to have one of our, um, you know, one of our, the managers that we've, or Tanya's allocated money to um, here today. And I mentioned that Matt Turner um, will be here just, just giving us a little bit of a, an, um, yeah, tell us a little bit of the, the story of the Intermediate Capital Group, um, its strategy, and, and probably the other thing that relates to us the most as, as we're all shareholders in um, you know, Wham Alternate Assets is you know, the money that Wham Alternate Assets, which is about you know, $10 million, is committed to you know, ICG. Um, you know, what is that doing? You know, what, you know, what are we invested in and what is the opportunity there? So um, I'd like to you know, thank you, Matt, very much for coming in. Um, if you can just give us a little bit of your uh, CV, um, you know, talk about the uh, intermediated capital group um, and, and just, to, you know, that would be great. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much, Jeff. And uh, and also, thank you, Dania, for your support also. Uh, so ICG, not to be confused with Infrastructure Capital Group, who live around the corner and we often get each other's uh, guests turning up to our doors and have to point them in the right direction. So we are Intermediate Capital Group. Um, we have been uh, we've been a global alternate asset manager uh, for 33 years. Um, we have presently uh, about 68.5 billion US um, under management, so just under 100 billion um, Australian dollars. We're just under 600 employees across 15 countries. Um, the strategies that we go and oh sorry, and the last thing I was probably going to say is, is that we've got reasonable size to us as well. We're about four billion pound market cap as well. So so. Um, you know, a good sustainable alternative investment manager over a long period of time. We we go and invest across um, a sort of four main strategies, so structured and private equity, um, and we have that uh, both Asia-Pac, Europe, um, US. Um, 
there's a bunch bunch of other different uh, businesses in that as well, life sciences and the like, um, private equity fund of funds, um, limited partner secondaries businesses as well. Um, the part where I sit, which is a private debt stream, we've got just under 20 billion US um, under management there. Uh, we also have um, real assets um, uh, business as well, and that's been relatively recent initiative, um, focusing on sale and leaseback, real estate opportunities, um, uh, and uh, senior debt infrastructure equity as well. And lastly, we've got like the liquid credit business. So that's mainly um, uh, US and European CLOs. Uh, so that's probably uh, gives you a snapshot um, for us. Um, uh, myself, um, Jeff alluded to it earlier. I've been doing this for just under 30 years, so 28 years um, come this January. Uh, I was invited to go and start this business for ICG about 10, well, actually 10 years ago, February the 4th. Uh, and the reason was is that um, the opportunity arose during the global financial crisis. There was, there was two things that uh, happened significantly. Um, the first one was always going to happen, which was changing the regulatory conditions for the local banks. Um, the area of lending that we go into became far more expensive for them internally. And so they basically lost a bit of interest. Uh, the second part of it as well was is that uh, the, the Australian banks were supplemented by a range of international banks. Um, a lot of these international banks got knocked around very heavily during the global financial crisis and basically retreated home. Um, so ICG had gone and surveyed the area for a, for a period of time. We already had a business here uh, in Oz um, on the private equity side and thought that it'd be a good opportunity to go and sit there and start developing some funds, funds of sorts that have been in existence in the US for the best part of 30 years and 20 years um, uh, in broader Europe. So, so that's basically, um, that's me and that's kind of how it, how it started. Um, I might just give you a, a bit of an idea of who exactly it is that we go and make loans to. Um, the, the term private debt or private credit is is often misunderstood because it goes across um, a range of different strategies. Um, there is, a, for instance, a lot of real estate debt. This fund does not do that. Um, there is small and medium enterprise um, uh, debt funds. This fund does not do that. Um, what we do is we generally go and lend to larger uh, non-investment grade companies um, they are predominantly owned by private equity, so we're supporting the leveraging of their equity, uh, but not exclusively. And that has been one of the opportunities we've seen in the last years. Is that uh, in the last years, is that what we've seen is that there's been more interest um, from corporate Australia and New Zealand, I should add, uh, to go and source more flexible um, style of credit. Um, certainly more flexible than what you will go and sit there and get out of um, either the Australian or New Zealand banking system. Um, maybe a simple way to go and describe the style of companies we um, lend to is maybe describe a couple. Um, so one that I think a lot of the, the people on the webinar um, would be familiar with um, is a group called MYOB. Uh, now, that is a business that was listed um, it was taken private in the uh, probably about 2008 or nine, I think, um, by Archer Capital, private equity firm. Um, uh, that business was shrunk to greatness and basically they got rid of a lot of their international stuff that improved cash flows uh, incredibly. Um, that was then taken off the, off the stock exchange 
uh, by Carlisle and TPG. Um, they went and continued to grow the business, at which point it was, um, at which point uh, it was then actually gone and listed on the ASX. Um, and what happened there was is it had a bit of a run for a period of time and presently the latest iteration um, was with uh, was with uh, KKR. So, so we've had a long experience. I've been around numerous of the financings um, in that. But what we have is we've got a really cash generative business. Um, it's one of the types of businesses that we that we that we really really like, um, and it's a classic example of the style of deal we do. Uh, so we have around about forty million dollars um, lent out to that. Um, that's pretty much uh, a standard uh, lend uh, for us. Um, it meets our core criteria, which has got tier one sponsor in KKR. Um, it's the it's the largest of what it does. It has a it obviously has a competitor um, that's out there, but tends to be generally less profitable. Um, one is very very focused on continuing to go and increase um, growth. Uh, so it doesn't have a lot of free cash flow generation. MYOB um, has been doing infill um, acquisitions to go and broaden its offering, um, but is still very, very focused on cash flow generation. Um, <clears throat> key for us, though, is, you know, sort of best in class, um, top one or two in what it does. Uh, and that's, you're going to get a theme of that happening in our portfolio. We see that really key. And it's a, it's a key part of the market here in Australia for our space. If you were in Europe or the US, you quite simply could not go and buy the number one or two market leader in those respective geographies. They are just too big for private equity to go and swallow. We're here in Australia and in, or even more so in New Zealand. We see these opportunities all the time. And it's part of the reason why there has been such um, a, a wave of money from international private equity because what they've worked out is, is that you can go and sit there and buy the largest operators uh, in their markets. You can actually buy them at a discount to international markets as far as um, EV multiples go. Uh, and there's not a lot of competition. Um, you know, I think the joke often um, that we have that, you know, we're in a country where, you know, there's four banks, a couple of insurance companies, a couple of grocers um, and uh, a couple of mining businesses. And so, it's a good place for private equity to go and um, to go and do um, business. I think what that deal also goes and demonstrates is because we have had such an experience with it through time that we're a natural place um, uh, for the for the new owners to come. We had experience. Um, I personally had actually worked on a previous bid for theirs that had not got up. They missed out by four cents uh, back in about two thousand and eleven. Um, but actually. Uh, we have a range of other of their assets in our portfolio. And so we get sort of exclusive access to their transactions. We are one of the longest um, uh, credit fund managers in Australia. And so we've been instrumental in going and building this market up. And, you know, due to that, I think we just go and seem to get first look at most things, but that's pretty important. Um, another one is just how deals can go and actually transition through time. Um, you, you may remember some time ago, uh, that there was a tragic accident um, up at Dreamworld on the Gold Coast and uh, some people tragically died. Um, the economic impact of that was a, it, it, it had a contagious effect with all of the theme parks near it. And so Village Roadshow, which was listed at the time, 
had got itself into some financial trouble. Now, that was a company that um, was listed, had always been banked via the bank market and had been banked pretty cheaply. With their earnings deteriorating, um, they needed, well, they basically the banks had forced them to sell a range of assets uh, and they were still looking to lighten their exposure. Um, we went and reached out to ANZ time and said, look, we can potentially go and sit there and help you. Um, if you get some other like-minded um, funds, now we're going to be more expensive than the banks because that's that's basically what we do. We provide flexibility. Um, we're creative, but that actually has a cost. Uh, and so what we did is we sat down um, with the with the incumbent banks and with the and the management, and we worked a path forward. Um, now, what had happened, obviously, um, in the intervening period, was is that business had obviously started to repair, had really great momentum and then COVID-19 hit. Uh, and so, as you can imagine, if you've got a business that's um, focused on cinemas and theme parks, well, a lot of that stuff was shut down. And so um, we voluntarily provided some liquidity lines to go and sit there and get them through. At the same time, BGH out of Melbourne um, had been sniffing around it as, a, as an asset um, that they would like to acquire. Um, they worked with the um, with the majority, oh, sorry, with the minority but significant shareholders um, uh, in the Kirby family, uh, and had gone and pulled together a deal. Um, we went and recut uh, the transaction. So um, by the time it came into private equity hands, what had happened? Um, the leverage had come down. The pricing went up, uh, and so we've got an excellent asset on our books. So that just gives you a bit of a feel, I guess. Um, as to as to the style of transaction that we go and do, um, I think we're probably a bit tight on time. I might be able to answer some other things just through questions. Hey, that's that's excellent, Matt. I mean, that gives everyone a really good, you know, detailed understanding of how you operate. You know, obviously you've you know, got enormous amount of experience in in the in the space, and uh, as you were mentioning, you know, you're one of the sort of main players. Um, in the space. Um, what I'd like to do now is just um, pass over to our corporate, one of our corporate affairs advisor, advisors, lower, uh, Zoe Landry, um, and she'll just take us through the various questions um, that have come up uh, so far from the webinar and also that people have uh, sent in to us. So you know, please keep you know, any additional questions you've got um, yeah, please send them in because you might think it's a yeah, it's it's not a significant question, but there's probably yeah, hundreds of people that are on the webinar that that um, would like to hear the answer of um, of that. So please ask as many questions as you can. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thanks, Matt and Dania and our shareholders for joining us today. Um, the first question that I have here is for Dania. Uh, it's a question from Robert. He says, you mentioned WAM Alternative Assets makes long-term thematic investment decisions. Can you please explain this in more detail? Thank you. Thank you, Robert. That's a really good question. Um, so we, it would be good to just like think first about the characteristics of alternative assets that we invest in. And one of the most important, important ones to consider and to remember that those are fairly illiquid assets. So when we invest in those asset classes, we do consider it as long-term investment. And looking across the portfolio, 
Some assets have the liquidity within one, three years. Some assets we will be holding for five, seven years, or sometimes longer, as the strategy is being implemented. And so in order to find attractive opportunities, the starting point is really to have a very good understanding of the macroeconomic fundamentals and what I call structural shifts that we've been seeing over the last few decades. And I, you know, there are various ways to refer to them. Um, you might hear thematic investing, you might hear megatrends. What it means is basically identifying those strong tailwinds across various areas uh, within the economy, society, and seeing how we can invest in those trends with strong tailwinds through alternative asset classes. Within WMA portfolio, we focus on four themes. One is growing aging population. Second one is climate change. Third one, digitalization. And finally, growing demand for food. And there are many examples. So just in order to illustrate, when we are thinking about aging growing population, that's a demographic trend um, that very difficult to argue, in particular in developed countries and developed economies. What it means um, that on some sectors, this demographic trend puts an enormous pressure, which in turn means there is very strong demand, and this demand is likely to remain there for a long time. And the supply is currently and is very likely to remain um, behind the demand in the future. So for me, one of those areas, one of those sectors is healthcare that's related to this theme. Um, in Australia, when we look at, at the statistics, it's very obvious that we'll continue facing challenges with meeting the increasing demand for good quality healthcare. And um, looking across the alternatives, that's the most exciting part of those asset classes because this theme can be invested in through private equity, infrastructure, real estate, even private debt, Matt can, can give a good example as well. Um, where it comes to selecting the actual investment opportunity, this is where the analysis is done more at the relative valuations level, the size of the opportunity set and actual current opportunities to deploy the capital. But hopefully that gives you a bit better understanding um, on our thinking about the portfolio construction and thematic investing. Thank you, Dania. Um, we'll stay with you. This next question is a two-part question from Will. He says, can you please explain how you value the NTAs of the unlisted investments in the WMA investment portfolio? And please discuss the valuation of these investments. Thank you. Um, very relevant question. Again, um, I have seen that in particular over the last 12 months, there were a lot of discussions on um, valuations and valuation approaches within alternatives. Um, for WMA, the first level of how we assess, um, how we come to our NTA, it's the assessment of the unit prices um, across the portfolio where we invest in private equity, infrastructure, real estate. 
those unit prices are calculated and provided by our investment partners. However, there is a very important second layer in the process, and this is where we do a very thorough valuation assessments on the underlying portfolios, on the underlying assets. This assessment is done every six months. We have strong governance in place, and we follow um, international accounting standards to ensure that it is all in line uh, with the standards, in line with the governance that we have in place. We can talk um, for hours about valuation approaches, again, because within our portfolio, we invest across asset classes. So as an example, if we take private equity, within private equity, we would find various approaches such as discounted cash flow, equity multiples, market comparables. Um, and this would be slightly different across each asset class, infrastructure, real estate, real assets. What's really important to remember is that there is a process, there are standards that everyone needs to follow, um, and there is a level of independence when those valuations are assessed. So within most asset classes, uh, independent valuations are done at least on the annual basis. And various factors are taken into account, financial performance of the business, uh, market performance within that sector where the business operates, um, any potential M&A activities and impact on the forecast and budget numbers, potential risks. What I found really interesting going through the, this process for the last valuation assessment as of the end of December was that we had to look into much more details what is the level of leverage within those assets and with those, those businesses. Why it is important because obviously the um, rising interest rates inevitably impact the um, weighted average cost of capital, which has been increasing for some of the businesses. So um, sorry, I just, I don't want to go into too many details, um, but just wanted to highlight, um, you know, thorough process. We have um, set framework and we also have auditors who are auditing those valuation assessment um, every six months. Thank you. Thank you, Dania. Um, and Matt, we'll move to you now. This is a question from Tom and he asks, what are the benefits of private debt? I know you touched on this uh, previously. Yeah, but... that's okay. I can get that. I'll, 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 I'll keep it to Australia and New Zealand. Um, you'll be here for about four days if I go through all of it uh, in all the <laughs> other geographies. Um, the, they're actually quite simple, um, the benefits of doing it. Um, we've, got, we've got quite a bit of volatility, obviously, out there at the moment. Um, people are unsure about what's happening um, with interest rates, with inflation. That causes... Um, people have concerns um, about the value uh, of their underlying investments. So one of the things I'll say about private debt in Australia and New Zealand, it's capital stable, um, and it does go around to the valuation um, of the assets. The assets are typically held at cost unless there is a reason for us to go and sit there and take a mark against them, and that will be based on some level of underperformance or something we haven't expected to, to go and see when we un initially underwrote the 
the investment at the very, very beginning. So it's actually important, I think, for a lot of the people out there on the webinar is, is that if you had a look at our returns through the entire life of the fund, I think we've had two down months. So, so in general, it just ticks over. Um, the other thing that's obviously important is, is that all of our loans are a floating rate. So, so, you know, people, you might hear the terms duration risk and things like that. Um, you won't be impacted um, by that here. Uh, every time that the base rates go up, we pass that through to the customers. So, so that's actually quite reassuring for people on the other end. As those rates go up, that will flow directly through to you. Um, what we've also gone and seen in Australia, possibly versus some other markets that can be uh, a bit more volatile on their returns, uh, is that our margins that we've been able to charge over time, so the amount over the base rate um, that we pass through to our investors and that our borrowers pay, has generally sort of been in the range of about 4.75% to about 5.6, I think, through um, the entire 10 years that we've been running the business. And that that is a pretty narrow um, it's a pretty narrow sort of return base um, as far as volatility goes. So, you know, if you're looking for good steady returns, it's a good product. Uh, the actual asset itself has very, very strong downside protection. If you think about it, we are secured lenders. So you are the first ones to get your money out if anything goes particularly wrong. We use this concept of embedded subordination. What that just means is that it's capital or money that is actually junior to you um, in a waterfall uh, should you need to go and actually realise your security. Uh, the other thing too is, is that the local regime here for going and enforcing the security um, is very strong, probably the strongest in the world. So if you were invested, for instance, um, in a private credit strategy in Europe, you would be exposed to the foibles of um, the insolvency laws of Italy and Spain and France, um, which can be chaotic at, uh, at, at best. Um, I've already pointed out that we're banking market leads. We've got a portfolio uh, of those. Um, and the other thing too is it's a growing market. So uh, private equities who we mainly go and support an acquisition um, and they have got a lot of what they call dry powder. So a lot of money to spend and invest. There are new teams that are coming from um, overseas private equity funds setting offices up here in Australia all of the time. Um, we have seen an incredibly diverse range of new people coming down here because they've all finally gone and worked out that it's a really, really great relative value trade. Um, uh, and I think too is also, I've also alluded to, I don't want to go over it, but uh, just regular corporates are starting to use us as well because the offering out of the banks is very narrow. Thanks, Matt. Um, we'll go to Jeff now. Um, this is a question from Dennis. He asked, can you please explain the profits reserve um, and is this cash that you can draw upon? Yeah, the, the answer, well, the profit reserves is effectively, it's an accounting um, uh, entry. So, and the, probably the best way to, you know, give me, I'll give you an example. Say, say we, there's $100 million of assets and those $100 million go up in value from $100 million to $110 million, you know, um, then you've actually made a $10 million profit. So what the board does is then say, okay, we'll put that in a profit reserve. So all of a sudden you've got $100 million of assets or equity, and then, well, actually you've got $110 million of um, assets. Uh, $100 million is the starting amount and the $10 million is put in the profit reserve. So you still have the $110 million to invest. 
um, and and that ten million is in the profit reserve. And to pay a dividend, you actually need to have booked a profit, uh, and for it to be franked, the needs to be uh, tax paid, or um, or yeah, fully franked dividends received, so you can attach the franking, you know, to that um, dividend. You know, if the profit's being paid out, so yeah, you can use. You know, the money in the profit reserve that's that's you know to invest in you know, various opportunities um, and the profit reserve is is actually an accounting um, you know, it's just an accounting entry thanks Jeff. Thanks, uh, we'll go back to Matt um, this is from our shareholder called Tash she asked can retailer investors invest in ICG and if not is this because the initial investment is too high uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very quick answer. The, the answer is yes. Um, and it's not open to, um, it's not open to retail investors. There's, there's a range of regulatory things around it as well, but it is an institutional only fund. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Daniel, has a question from Carol. As at 31 December 2022, cash in the portfolio seems high at around 45%. Can you, is there a reason for this? Thank you, Carol. Um, yes, uh, so the cash is at the end of the December was relatively high within the portfolio. Now, we do need to um, look into a bit more details at this level of cash uh, that you'd see in the NTA report. Um, about two-thirds of that cash is committed capital. So, as an example, we committed 10 million to Matt's strategy and we are waiting for Matt to call the capital from us. In other words, to deploy the capital from us. So this period from committing the capital to deploying the capital is very common within alternative assets in terms of the rather than doing it within the same day. Uh, it's usually, depending on the asset class, depending on the strategy, um, 12 to 24 months. So what I've been doing within the portfolio, as we have been exiting matured investments, the capital was then committed to new investment opportunities. And then gradually our investment partners all the capital from us. If you, uh, when, when you will be looking at uh, January and February and TA, you will already see that the overall level of cash uh, will be lower because our commitments, for example, to infrastructure have been already deployed. So that's the process to work through when the portfolio is going through this revitalization strategy and is evolving. I hope that helps. In terms of the long term, I do. Um, I would like to have some level of cash within the portfolio over the medium to long term, uh, not at this current level, um, mainly because investment opportunities, they really come in a very sporadic manner in, within the alternative space. And so I would like to have capital and be able to access those investment opportunities. Thank you, Dania. Jeff, this is a question from Piero. He says, is WAM Alternative Assets revenue and profit down compared to last year? 
Oh, when and thank you, Pierre. Yeah, good question. When you're looking at listed investment companies, um, the revenue is a, a function of how much you trade, you know, or how many assets you realise, um, you know, from buying, you know, buying and selling, realise or investing. So that's where the revenue comes up. So you might have a period where there's not much happens on the revenue side, uh, but the value of the assets go up. And, and the profit is actually the percentage of which those value of the assets go up. And, and an example is, you, know, you might get an example you know, that what I was using earlier, say $100 million, you know, it goes up, say in this period, it goes up you know, 10% from $100 million to $110 million. So in theory, you've got a profit, a pre-tax profit of $10 million. Um, and last year, it actually might have gone up yeah, twenty percent from a hundred million dollars. Sorry, from uh, so it would have been eighty-two million dollars to a hundred million dollars. Yeah, you know, whatever. Tw- yeah, you know, that twenty percent is, um, and then the actual uh, profit result will be yeah you know, will actually be a drop. Yeah, you know, because last year you made eighteen million dollars, and this year you made ten million dollars. So it would have been you know, it would be a drop of forty-five you know, percent. So with listed investment companies, the important thing to look at is, um, is the NTA. And of course, you want to try to buy things at a discount NTA. Um, you know, and I mentioned earlier that WMA is trading about a, a little over a 12% discount NTA. Uh, you also want to look at the profit reserve because that gives you a bit of a window in terms of um, whether the company can continue to pay dividends. You know, if there's a period where you know there's a little bit of you know it's a tougher market and they're not making money um, and then also you know the amount of dividend you pay in terms of looking at a listed investment company like a normal operating company you know, which which you know we spend you know, on the investment side all our time looking at um, yeah it's not it's not like you're not looking at um, you're not looking at that way thanks. thanks. Yeah, right. uh, Dania, this is a question from Nick. He says, can you provide your thoughts on whether WAM alternative assets is weighted too heavily on water rights? Yes, thank you, Nick. Um, indeed, when um, we we talked with you last year, early last year, we did um, discuss it in more details in terms of the concentrated exposure within the portfolio to water rights investments. Now, we also communicated with you um, last year that we will be gradually reducing our investment to water rights to um, mainly managing this concentration risk. So we have received um, the proceeds from the redemption requests that we put in with our investment partner and the Total exposure to water rights within the portfolio is currently, and I'm using end of January numbers, is currently 22%. Now, it's um, it consists of two parts uh, within water rights. So one, uh, which is about 16% of the portfolio, is the water rights fund. And then the rest of that 22% is the water right attached to strategic Australian agriculture fund. 
which will be wind down uh, within the next uh, two years. That's my expectation. Hopefully that helps. Thank you, Dania. Uh, Matt, we'll go to you now. Um, this is a question from Ian. He says, given the increasing number of credit funds entering the Australian market, how does ICG differentiate themselves? Okay. Um, that's a good question. Uh, let me go and explain a little bit, though, around the more credit funds coming to the market and what that, what that really is. Um, as I stated at the beginning, there's a diverse range of funds that have a different approach to how they go and invest. And on the credit fund side, we have predominantly seen um, we've predominantly seen entrants coming from offshore, uh, and they've been targeting um, what we refer to as uni tranche transactions. That's a transaction where you sort of meld senior with a bit of mes into it, but you put it in a single instrument. So hence, it's a uni tranche. Um, facility. There's a lot of money that's come from offshore in that space. I think that's going to be really interesting to see how much they actually get to deploy. Um, previously, a group called HPS had gone and put quite a bit of money to work. Uh, and then you've seen people like KKR Credit and Bain Credit being in the market for quite some time. They generally tend to have sort of smaller hold appetites. Um, but we've recently seen Aries come in and Oak Tree's been talking about it and so on and so forth. But what they're doing is looking at doing is putting very large transactions down here in Australia into a global or super regional fund. That's not really a place where we go and play. Um, we don't like having that level of concentration in the Australian um, senior loan fund. And so what we typically go and do is we will participate in some uni tranches we tend to do them as parts of clubs. And the people who go in involved in those are not necessarily just credit funds, but investment banks and international banks that have their own books. Um, we are a group who are all known to each other. And so we work together. Um, so a lot of the new money that's come in is not really competing with us. Um, how do we differentiate ourselves, for instance, say from some of our Australian-based competitors? Uh, that's pretty simple. What we have is we have a fund that is specifically local to Australia and New Zealand. Um, we do all of our sourcing with local teams, as they would. I think our benefit over them, um, though, is that we have all of this international experience um, with us as well. Um, I'm one of five investment committee members, for instance, that sit on our investment committee. The other four go and run significant businesses within ICG and have incredible um, depth of experience. The other thing too is, is that Australia tends to go and trail um, the US and Europe and so our big teams of analysts we go and have chats about with every transaction um, to go and sit there and talk about specifically what they're seeing in their markets and whether or not that may or may not apply here. So we think it actually makes better decision making by having a broader resource of information. I think it's also sorry to add um, from, you know, that that's from the institutional perspective, right? Yeah. Like just considering the size of the deals that you um, target within within your strategy. Mm. I think what we are seeing also parallel in the Australian market is quite a few of newer names, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. where, know you know, a, a team like private credit team from a bank um, leaves like three people yeah, and yeah. set up. A strategy. Look, we're not here, like to. I'm not going to go and brag to, yeah, on them. To no, comment, look, but yeah, it's true that there there are 
there is increasing number of players. Um, to me, it's more the question, what is the quality investment track record governance? Because one of the most important things, we, we might be very similar with Matt on this, is the assessment of risk and the due diligence around the risks. Um, and that's kind of the key question, how other players do this and do they have yeah. the infrastructure to do this? Yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got 33 years um, of process driven into our process and it's all based on experience. Um, and I think what, Dani, you, you're talking about the small and medium enterprise um, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah look, I, I, I don't want to go and rag on um, their strategies, but mm. it's probably not where – it's not a place that I would naturally want to go and play for a debt fund. And the reason for that is that the number one um, thing you have to be focused on is capital preservation. And those smaller businesses are just innately more risky. Um, and so they may be able to go and command some higher returns. Um, I think what's telling is, is that the large offshore funds where they come down there are not going into that space. Um, they will go actually into, you know, large corporates like where we're trying to go and provide them with a more leverage, a more risky um, transaction, mm -hmm. but at least they're sticking at the big end of the market. So so, so that I, I understand that logic. Um, the smaller stuff... I. You know, if you're coming into uh, a rising um, interest rate environment, inflation in businesses that are only doing three or four million dollars worth of what we call cash flow, so EBITDA, um, you know, God help you if you've got it wrong, because the 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 capacity to um, recover if you make a mistake there uh, is really, really, really difficult. Thank you, Matt. Uh, we'll go back to Jeff now. Um, this is a question from Gary. He asks, what benchmark does WAM Alternative Assets use to measure its investment portfolio performance? Yeah, look, thanks, Gary. And, and it, like, it's, not, it's not a simple answer. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, Dania, who's managed the portfolio, is, is looking at all, each of the individual asset classes in isolation and, and really looking at you know, being, you know, of selecting, you know, the top performers in each of those asset classes. Because I think Daniel mentioned earlier about, you know, the water rights, well, obviously looking at, um, you know, you can't really measure that against, you know, corporate debt, you know, as, you know, we've been talking about, um, you know, earlier today. So it, it just, it just, it's not like you're investing in the, um, you know, top 200 ASX listed companies. It's really you know, very, um, yeah. It's 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 each individual silo of you know, each individual part of each individual sector that, um, that that we're investing in. So yeah, it's not. You, we just can't say, oh look, it's it's ten percent or it's five percent. Yeah, it, it's it's looking at that. The yeah, you know, the players in the sector in Australia relative to who who's in there. And and yeah, Dania's yeah really spends all her time you know, making sure she's got the best in those. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, we'll stay with you. This is a question from Dennis. He asks, "Can you explain how the fee structure for WMA works?" Yeah, the W. I know. You know, we took over WMA, and there was a you know, the previous manager had a a totally different fee structure. Um. And, and so our fee structure is, a, you know, we believe, is a lot more equitable. Um, 
we um, have a 1% management fee uh, and, and there's no performance fee. Um, you know, it, and, and our logic was, let us take over, let us you know, get the share price trading at NTA, if not a premium, let's get the dividend, you know, let, let's you know, get the dividend sustainable and so we can keep growing it. Um, and then, you know, if we can deliver, you know, over time, then, um, yeah, and we perform and we perform well, you know, then we've got to, you know, we can go back to shareholders and ask for that. So, uh, and, and that's effectively, that's effectively the fee structure. You know, the each, in each, you know, individual manager that we allocate, you know, capital to, that, you know, they also have their fee structures, um, but, you know, you've got to remember we're coming in as a wholesale investor, you know, not a retail investor. So we get a, an advantage um, because of that. We're, sorry, you, we, we are yeah. coming in as, a, as an institutional investor, yeah. actually. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the strategies that we invest in, they will have very competitive fee structures versus what we would generally see within the retail wholesale market. Thank you. Dania, this is a question from Leon. He says, can you please provide a general overview of the legacy assets that WAM Alternative Assets holds? And can you please provide your thoughts on holding or disposing of these assets? Yes, sure. So um, let's, um, let's look at um, the last two years. In fact, it's, it's already, it's been a bit more than two years now since we started managing the portfolio. Um, we, what I would call, apologies for using terminology, recycled over 40% of the capital. And um, we have the inherited assets remaining across private equity. It's a private equity growth strategy, venture capital, real estate. There is one commercial real estate asset left. And we have real assets that includes uh, water rights and that includes agriculture. Now, the plan for the portfolio is to continue exiting growth assets, uh, which would be included in private equity, venture capital, um, real estate and agriculture. Water rights weight within the portfolio will evolve over time. And it will evolve both due to the organic growth within the portfolio because the NTA has been growing um, and also, you know, the change in composition of the portfolio. I still see this asset class as an, a very important asset class for the portfolio. It has strong diversification benefits. In fact, if we do look um, at the investment returns from water rights strategy versus more traditional asset classes, we would see that they are negatively correlated. In other words, um, from the in portfolio construction perspective, it is an asset class that helps to deliver a more sustainable um, investment performance within the portfolio throughout various economic and financial cycles. I hope that helps. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dania. Uh, Jeff, we'll go to you. This is a question from Philip. He says, while he understands Wilson, Wilson Asset Management's preference of not raising capital when the share price is lower than the NTA, would having a larger pool of capital allow for more investment opportunities? 
the yeah, I mean that's a, that's a fair that's a fair assessment. Obviously, it gives you more muscle in the market, and um, you know. So, um, like the plan is to is to grow the business. Um, now, the, there is you know, the board doesn't have any current plans to raise capital. Um, there is a way of you know, like in theory, if you have a rights issue or an option issue, you know that that you issue to all shareholders that that's equitable. Um, you know that that's they're not neither of those are in our you know, that the board hasn't discussed either of those. Um, you know, so in theory, we're pretty confident that you know, shareholders understand the company more. Um, you know that. And it, and it continues to deliver you know, solid performance with a, a you know, again a very solid dividend. You know, it's nearly, you know, nearly a what's well, a four, nearly, a little under a five percent fully franked yield um, with alternate assets and and you know, with the potential that for that dividend to grow over time. So you know, we're pretty confident we'll get it to NTA. Thank you, Jeff. Um, we'll stay with you. This is a question from David. He says, "Where alternative assets is sitting on a on a significant profits reserve? Why doesn't it pass more of these reserves onto the shareholders in the form of dividends?" Yeah, there's there's the profit reserve and and to pay. I mean, we could pay it all out as a dividend, um, and then and only a, only a small amount of it will be franked, and that's pretty inefficient for individuals because then they'll pay their marginal tax rate. Um, on that, so it's really a. You tend to find, you know, the example I gave at the very start: the hundred million going to one hundred and ten million. Yeah, you know, so you you got a ten million dollars you can put in the profit reserve. Um, you might not paid any tax, yeah, you know, on that, you know, ten million. Actually, it'll be if it went from one hundred million to one hundred and ten million. The real example is you're up ten million pre-tax, so you pay. Eventually, when you sell those assets and realize, if you sold them all and realise that you pay three million dollars tax, so the actual profit reserve would only go up by seven million dollars. Um, so, yeah, the the franking comes later. The profit reserve comes first, and you tend to find the franking comes, you know, when those assets are realised. So there's a mismatch. So it actually takes time to build up the franking. So it's not we couldn't pay it. 19 cent fully frank dividend now. And then the question is, okay, if you couldn't pay a fully frank dividend now, do you pay it all out now? Uh, and then you have nothing, you know, for the next period to pay the dividend. So the board's really got to balance all those um, things, you know, and, and really the board's come to the conclusion is, hey, look, let's pay them a growing stream of fully frank dividends. You know, when the franking comes in, of course, you know, it allows us to keep, you know, paying those dividends. And the profit reserve, as I said, always comes first. Thanks. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and that um, concludes our questions today. Um, I'll hand back to you for some closing remarks. Look, thank you, you know, very much, Zoe, uh, Dania and Matt. Thanks very much. Thanks, you know, everyone, for the questions. Uh, as I said at the start, this is your company. And if you have any additional questions or, um, you know, for some technological you know, reason, you weren't able to send the questions in, you know, please email us. Um, yeah, we're, yeah, we, it's very important that you fully understand what we're doing, and, and only by that then we will get the share you know, the, the share price trading at you know, NTA and um, or if not a premium. 
So thank you very much and look forward to seeing you uh, in person on, on the road show in the next, in a uh, couple of months time. Thank you.